0: You're listening to The Razor's Edge, an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor, trader, short seller, and deep dive researcher for the last two decades plus, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who's worked in investing media the last decade while managing my own stocks. We break down investing themes or ideas and speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge... Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. Reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. You can subscribe to Akram's The Razor's Edge newsletter at the-razors-edge.ghost.io. The link is in Akram's Twitter profile. Here's our disclosure. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. We'll disclose any positions and any stocks discussed in the introduction to a given episode. We continue our Future of Compute series with Tony Maslowski, CFO of Cerebris. Many of the new gen chip companies are focused on pioneering a new approach to developing chips rather than just making improvements on the margins. Cerebris' approach is to go bigger with a massive wafer chip that allows for more integrated compute at lower power cost, which is important for AI compute in general. It's an approach that has appealed to customers beyond the hyperscalers, with pharmaceuticals and drug companies being a leading end market for Cerebras. Tony talks about the company's core insights and about what those end markets look like now. And then given his CFO role, and his background as a former CFO at Avago Broadcom, we also get into the public market outlook for these new-gen chip companies, the twisted nature of the semiconductor supply chain, and how and when that might inclog, and what the end market drivers could be for AI in general. It's another great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. For disclosures, I'm again long TSM and Apple, no positions for Akram. We have at least one more Future of Compute episode coming up, we may slip in a timelier discussion before then. This was recorded with Tony in the first week of October. Here we go. Tony, welcome to the Razor's Edge. It's so good to have you on. Pleasure to be here. So, I guess just let's start really basic. Could you just give us a little bit of the background on Cerebrus, the company's focus, and, and where you came on board and just sort of what Cerebrus is trying to do?
1: Sure, no problem. I joined Cerebrus in uh, January of last year, right before COVID. Uh, I was uh, on the sidelines uh, thinking that I might not go back to work because I had a pretty successful career at Avago Broadcom as CFO. And uh, someone told me that there was a company literally three blocks from my home in Los Altos. And I said, you're kidding. And they introduced me to Andrew and One thing led to another, and I I took on the job. And I think I was most impressed with the vision that Andrew had and the amazing challenge they had in front of them, and they've already accomplished most of it. Cerebris, for those of you who don't know the company well, it was started about five-plus years ago in 2016. And it was a group of founders from previous companies, C-Micro, and they got together and then two things they wanted to do. They wanted to work again, together again, and they wanted to transform the compute landscape. What they thought about was the biggest growth area of compute was AI, and they also thought that, wouldn't it be just a weird coincidence that a GPU is the ultimate AI processor? So they went off and tried to design their own chip. And they said, this is a very unique workload. And they tackled the idea of wafer scale, which is to make a chip out of a single wafer, which in the first attempts of wafer scale was probably a three-inch wafer. And they decided to attempt this on a 12-inch wafer. The company was in stealth mode until August of 2019. At that point, they unveiled what they've done, got a lot of great press because it's never been accomplished in the chip industry before. And as recent as last year, they unveiled their follow-on product, a seven nanometer product. The first one was 16 nanometer. And then this year at Hot Chip, they unveiled some techniques to allow very large parameter models to run on cerebrous boxes. So it's a pretty impressive track record, but I don't fault anyone if they haven't heard of us because we've really come out of stealth mode for just under two years now.
0: First, just before asking about the chips, the I mean, I guess we were all kind of stuck at home during the pandemic, but that, that must have been a sort of interesting situation to join a company right down the block and then be in a sort of forced the work from home environment. I mean... Kind of, uh, I think
1: my fifth email was something about, well, Palo Alto schools are talking about COVID, so should we send something out on COVID? Needless <laughs> to say, none of us expected it to have the run it is having. But uh, yes, it was very interesting to uh, walk to work and then stay at home and then pretty much work from home. And then we opened for, for a short time when the Santa Clara ones restrictions were lifted this year and then back to home again so we hope that we'll be back in the office sometime early next year
0: okay so you talked about the i guess the the core insight it sounded like or the core question was it's weird that ai is optimized on gpu and so cerebra is tackling could you just go a little bit more walking into like what why is that? Why was that taken as such a opportunity, or as like this is a weird thing that we should explore? And then a little bit more on just how Cerebras has been tackling that and, and and why.
1: Sure, I think what came across initially is that something that was designed to do fast graphics on a PC card was uniquely capable of doing some important work in AI. And I think even at that time, five years ago, some of the models that were being developed really came to the limits of a single GPU. So then it became a task of hooking these GPUs together. And that's where I think the idea of putting as many as we can on a single uh, wafer became very important for a couple of reasons. One, the actual compute in uh, deep learning is very, very simple. It's accumulate, multiply. And so you don't need a very complicated processor, but what you need is to move that data around and you need memory to store it. And so that's why having all these cores, 400,000 on our initial 16 nanometer and 850,000 on our seven nanometer connect so that they can talk to each other And that really speeds up the overall training process, because as soon as you walk off chip, you are hundreds if not thousands of times slower in communicating with your partner as opposed to you being on chip. So really our development is nothing wildly impressive on the actual compute part of it, but it's on the networking and the memory we provide, and the ability to talk to any other core on
0: this whole wafer. Okay, so the and just frame it. I I, I don't think you mentioned Cerebrus was founded when? When did the company come into? I think it was April April of two thousand sixteen. So how has the? I guess what was the, the? You talked about being in stealth for quite some time, and then sort of beginning to. Unveil these wafer chips and sort of the heads it turned when it happened. What did the market look like when you guys were starting to starting to sketch out a go to market strategy? And how has that sort of evolved over the last you know over over the short lifespan, but over the lifespan of the company? Where where are we now compared to where you guys started tackling the market?
1: So just as a comparison, mo- most companies, uh, most chip companies. When they're doing a new uh, line width, so going from 16 to 10 or 10 to 7, that's usually a couple years of development. And as Cerebrus proven, you know, we're about that, if not a little bit faster. Uh, we unveiled 16 nanometer October of, I mean August of 19, excuse me, and we unveiled 7 nanometer about a year later. So the first step in this whole process was to come up with a design of this individual core and how it would communicate to other cores around it. And as Andrew tells the story, because I wasn't there at the time, the idea of putting all of these across a large wafer was not that difficult in some ways because it's hey, it's just we're going to repeat this across the whole wafer. The first most important step was to get the reticles to talk to each other. So in standard chip manufacturing, you're limited by the lithography equipment as to the size of a reticle. And a GPU is at its max size for that reticle or that individual, Andrew likes to use the, the story, think of a, uh, cutting out cookies, right? You have the sheet that's a 12 inch diameter and you're cutting out square cookies. And the size of that cookie was limited. So the first thing they had to uh, overcome was to get inter communication established, which really hasn't been done. The next step was once you had inter communication established, it was how do you power something this much larger than the chips in the past? Or how do you even package this chip was a big hurdle and then providing power, cooling, and then writing software to make this chip work were all incredible feats. So I think a good analogy is is told by Andrew many times is if you think back to when Everest was being first thought about people climbing Everest, they established base camp one. They said, that's pretty tough, even though it's nowhere near the top, but it's pretty tough, but we have a base here. Now they establish base camp two and they say, wow, That was probably twice as hard as base camp one. And as they progressed up to base camp five and they made their first attempt at the summit is that you won't believe how hard that was. And that's kind of the path that this company has gone through. Is that, yep, sounds easy. We can design something better than a GPU. Okay, now we're going to put it across a whole wafer, which has never been done before. Now we're going to package it, which has never been done before. Now we're going to power and cool it. And each step along the way was much more difficult than any previous steps. So that is why the first four years of the company was really in stealth mode, because there's nothing really to report out. I'm sure someone could have came out and said, hey, we've shown inner retical communication. People go, oh, okay, so what? Oh, we've learned to cool it. Well, you haven't learned to power it yet. Well, now we've done all these things, but we don't have our software ready. So that's where the first four years went into. And now it's been more of just refinement of our software, refinement of the chip, refinement of the system that we enclose the chip into.
0: Presumably because it's of those escalating challenges, it, there weren't a lot of other companies that were trying to climb the same Everest. Is that like, is that sort of, I don't know if that was by design or obviously you're always trying to find a competitive advantage, but is it, the market at this point, are there other companies once you got to Everest that you found, oh, other people have been here or has this been, this path been pretty unique?
1: No, very, very unique. Uh, I come from a chip industry background and I would say that most of the time we're thinking about shrink. You're trying to get to the next line with secondarily, people are trying to put as many layers on a chip. You know, so some chips go up to 50, 70, 80 layers high. I read something this weekend that the new 3D NAND approach for memory could post potentially be 200 plus layers. And I think the chip designer mentality was, hey, we know our reticle size. We know um, these are the things we can and can't do. And as long as we keep shrinking it, performance will keep up. The problem is... In AI, it doesn't follow Moore's law. Things have been exponentially increasing in difficulty from the earliest models to today's models. And the growth factors are magnitudes of hundreds, if not thousands of times more computing power is needed, memory or the network. And that's why the current generation, I believe, of AI chips isn't keeping up to the demand that the customers have.
0: Well, they, right. That that was where I was going to go next. Is that I'm curious. Obviously, AI is we're still pretty early days there, and it's rapidly moving. At the same time, I wonder, GPUs are pretty established as an option, and also companies are looking in house for different options. Whether it's Google, whether it's Amazon, or whoever, where they're trying to design their own chips to tackle this. And so I'm curious how you like once you finally emerge in the market, what sort of Obviously performance is what's going to carry the day at the, at the end of it, but is it coming with this novel path and this novel story? Like what was the initial and you're still in relatively early stage of your career as well with Siri What has it been like to tell that story to just demonstrate, have you had to make shifts in terms of getting the message across with this different larger chip and this different direction and, more cohesive chip the way I understand it?
1: Sure. So I think since we started rolling out the product, I think a couple of things became very apparent to us. Many customers stopped development of very complicated models because they just didn't believe the hardware existed. So they said, yeah, we could design this model to solve X. Oh, by the way, probably to run that training run, it's going to take two years they said, well, okay, by that time, maybe the model will change. So it's not very practical or even a series of months was somewhat impractical. So a lot of the designers of these new networks either put on the shelf that idea or they went down another path, which they said, okay, we've hooked together 100 GPUs. For this model, we'll probably need at least 1,000 GPUs connected together. And, you know, that's how we'll solve this problem. Well, the connection of those GPUs from whoever is a very complicated task. And, And one data point you can refer to is if Elon Musk took many months to implement $100 million, roughly, of GPU hardware, hardware, cabling, memory, and other things, what makes someone who is a AI data scientists in a bank think they can do it faster or more efficiently. So the first thing we found was there's a lot of people who put AI models, I would say, on the shelf because they couldn't get them to run in reasonable amounts of time. The second thing is those who took the path of connecting hundreds if not thousands of GPUs together found out that Every GPU they added from say 999 to 1000, it did not provide a percent or two of improvement. It provided a couple basis points of improvement. So it's not very scalable. So when you attach maybe your first eight or 16 together, instead of getting 16 times the performance, you get something closer to 13. When you add the next 32, you're not getting 48, you're getting something in the 20s. So when you're attaching that thousandth GPU, you're getting 99.002 or something. So they found that somewhat dissatisfying as well to say, gosh, we can't just throw a bunch more GPUs at it to make it work. The other thing you're seeing is that, as as you've noted, Google has their own chip a TPU Amazon is creating their own silicon Elon Musk is creating his own silicon and packaging techniques to make what he thinks is his next generation of supercomputer and you have to ask yourself if 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 the GPU can solve everything why are these people now investing the millions of dollars to develop their own silicon and i think Our product catches people right away from the fact that it says, hey, we don't have to worry about the hardware. And here's some models that we've shelved, we can get these to run. And when we get them to run, they'll run faster so we can iterate them and we can get better accuracy. And so it's a pretty compelling statement. One, One client of ours in a in a sales meeting said, you know, when they looked at developing any AI model in their in their company. First thing they do is they say, we have to carve out a third of the time to get the hardware to work. Then once we have the hardware working, we have to carve out about a third of the time to iterate the model. Because even though the model takes a long time to run on this new hardware platform, we have to make a few iterations to get the accuracy up or make tweaks to it. And then finally, when they're ready to release the model, They sometimes what they call prune the model to make it run even faster, giving up a little accuracy on an inference chip. And they said to us, when they looked at our product, they realized very quickly they can eliminate step one completely and they can eliminate step two almost completely and get their overall time to market on a new model or a new concept done much, much more quickly. So those are some of the... I would say early inputs from customers thus far.
0: And so, and this is going to be a very layman way of asking this, but I assume either your chip can integrate into their systems relatively seamlessly, or at the very least, it's going to be taking no, it's going to ultimately save them time over that, what you talked about those sort of steps that they're going through anyhow. So it's not like they're not going you know, there's not any incumbency advantage the way there is with certain chip systems in certain markets. Like they need to do the same sort of integration work anyway. And so
2: I guess the question you're trying to ask, Daniel, is, is should they think of it as an accelerator or like a system solution?
1: I, I think you, you ask it a kind of in an, an interesting way. We sell a system. However, the higher level frameworks we support, which are PyTorch and TensorFlow, which are used by the majority of data scientists. You cannot find a data scientist that writes in CUDA, which is NVIDIA's language. And so our system plugs in very easily. We provide a compiler and it's a single line of code to get that compiler to run on either either PyTorch or TensorFlow and compile to our machine. So it's, it's a pretty quick, an easy installation of our product. Now our product is actually supported by some standard server configurations and so forth, but there is no, I would say rewrite or start at step one in your software. We take this, the most popular frameworks today, PyTorch and TensorFlow, and we compile those.
0: And what if for sort of, to maybe get both into something that our listeners will be able to see understand in terms of end markets, but also just kind of make this a little bit more tangible when you're early customers or where you're going, what I've heard from articles, other interviews with Andrew or, or other people at the company, it sounds like AI obviously is more widespread than we might think. It's not just the domain of the hyperscalers or what have you. And I think it's interesting. I, I don't whether you want to get into specific customers or can is on your end, but I understand that it's a, pharma has come up as an example. And so I'm just curious, who have you found receptive? What are you seeing being done with the, the market opportunities here? Like, where are you going with these, with these big chips and, and getting the receptivity?
1: Sure, sure. So, so initially, the company sold into the National Labs. And the National Labs are great sponsors for all leading-edge technology. So if you have a new idea and it's held together by a paper clip and a rubber band, a national lab will give it a try. So our first customers were the national lab, not because the hardware was not stable, it's because that the software stack was still pretty immature from day one when Argonne National Lab got our box in fourth quarter of 2019. Since then, in less than, what is it, less than a year GlaxoSmithKline, which is a public customer of ours, was very interested in what we're doing and and understood that the results could be very, very compelling. So they entered into a long-term arrangement with us over the next couple of years. And what we found in pharma was that pharma uses a, a series of models called language models, specifically in the area of uh, BERT. BERT was an early model of language. What they found out was that the context that's required to understand language was very important to them in the areas of research, specifically looking at research that's been published all over the world and understanding it in multiple languages. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is context is very important when you're looking over the DNA strand. So as you go across DNA, what the previous markers were are important to what you're seeing in front of you. So this whole idea of context was very, very important and very applicable to many different areas of pharma. So we saw a little bit of an explosion in our pharma business right after GSK became public buying our box. And we'll probably end end this year with a a nice multiple of pharma customers. So that that is one area. In the finance area, obviously, they have a lot of language models, whether they be loan applications, insurance documents, things like that. So we believe that area will be kind of a, a seed area this year and will develop nicely over the next couple of years. And then finally, People were very impressed with what our box could do, and they, they started thinking about non-AI applications. And so there's an interesting problem in fluid dynamics that a paper was written by a National Energy Technical Lab, I think it's called Nettle, uh, last year, where they proved that using a cerebrous box was the first time ever you could solve fluid dynamics problems in real time. And what does that mean? Well, that means in fluid dynamics, what you typically try to understand is if you push on one end of the swimming pool, what happens on the other end of the swimming pool? And fluid dynamics is applicable to both fluids, obviously, but also air and so forth. So this type of capability has some far-reaching possibilities, let's say. And so that's another area that's will probably pop through this year with some of our first customers using it in that way.
0: It it sounds to me like the the value add, and I, again I'm gonna speak layman's level is the it's your processing, you're enabling the processing, and obviously that's what AI do it does, but of a large amount of data rapidly and that is codable or recognizable, you can in the even in the food dynamics in theory you could crunch all the numbers and all the hypotheticals for what the effect would be but it's being able to do that at a speed that previously wasn't even with the GPUs is is not possible or just not as efficient for those networks to be able to process that is that sort of the the really yeah, quick and dirty thing
1: so and i think getting to kind of the base of your question is that we all feel ai today in our daily life and you know whether it be as simple as a recommendation engine or whether it be the quick turnaround on your loan document or whether you buy a a peloton and you can stretch the payments over 36 months ai touches us in a lot of different ways these days and so ai you know we firmly believe and you know i agree with what andrew says is that AI workloads will be easily a third of all computing workloads in the next 10 years because the ability to crunch that much data, get insight from it, and apply it is going to be really
0: business changing. Interesting stuff. Akram, do you want to jump in on something here?
2: Yeah, sure. So when you think about the market, and like to your point, like in terms of general, solutions where like let's say you may be doing some inferencing acceleration on a cpu or what google started doing with the tpu or now alexa running on on inferentia in-house and when you think about these workloads where you go back to kind of the very basic you know matrix multiply i mean i saw intel has added essentially matrix multiply units of sapphire rapid right next to the core next to the cpu core and when you think about where the market is headed. And I mean, right now, from a chip investor standpoint, you guys pretty much know the The name of the game is, it's, you know, it's NVIDIA, right? I mean, when people look at the market externally and they invest across, I mean, even though AMD has made some progress on on the GPU end, generally it's NVIDIA and, you know, 90% plus market share that they have in, let's call it AI branded compute, even if, CPUs are doing a lot of that work in the background and other solutions. Going forward, do you see this? And it's something I struggle with following because I mean, I get, I get the problem you guys are solving. Your chip is, you know, 50 times the size of an A100. You've got a ton of on-chip memory. So you can stick the models on chip and these models are just getting exponentially bigger. Obviously you have significantly more bandwidth. And when you look at that, like, the way I've been I mean, and following, just you guys and and some other players in the space, uh, particularly the ones uh, who have been adopted by you know Livermore and Argonne and whatnot, and 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 the use cases I've read about, it feels more like an HPC environment, right? I mean, We call it AI, but supercomputing essentially, you know, at a system. Like I mean, is, are should people be thinking about AI up and coming chip companies? more so in like the sense of a modern day, like Cray, you know, was like 15, 20 years ago, if you were investing in, in, in the space?
1: Yeah, I think, I think we have to be careful to kind of follow the supercompute area. Because as we know, with supercomputers, people said, hey, you know, these have finite applications, mostly because of cost. With AI, there's some... Interesting and powerful things that can be established with very small models, but use large amounts of data. So I think when people say, "Hey, it's, it feels like supercompute where AI is going," yeah, I mean you feel that way because you see the the headline from you know Elon's uh, super compute on AI and how much it costs, and you see Nvidia's even uh, Superpod, I think they call it. And you see other people putting, you know, thousands of chips together and and giving it a name and say, wow, that's a lot of space. Or Google's what is about a hundred foot long rack of uh, AI equipment. And so people tend to think that, oh, that's the only applications for AI. But there's a lot of other AI applications that the models are, I would say, medium to small, but they need to keep current on the data. So they get retrained a lot. And so I think that's the part that people don't really focus on is that there's some very successful AI applications. A good example is probably a recommendation engine. A Recommendation engine needs to understand the connections you made in the last month on what songs you like, what movies you like, what TV shows you like, or scripted series you like, and start connecting the dots based on current data. So that's rerunning or relearning from an AI perspective. And those are those are some pretty big users of AI
2: today. When you think about those more like Facebook's uh, you know, Instagram image recognition, Google ranking, and, and Amazon Alexa. And I mean these these huge, I think this is where I mean I struggle and probably others do as well. When you think about it, it's like, all right, there's gonna be these mass workloads where I'm not going to need so much system on chip memory. And then there's these models on the other end where I'm going to need a ton of system on chip memory and like you, when you watch what's a, a, as you know an outsider looking in and you see what the hyperscalers are doing because I mean their business model is essentially to aggregate demand and once they have these gigantic applications you know it seems like they customize to them and when we think of like the addressable market, and we were discussing this last time, like, you, know, you look at the TAM, training gets a lot, of the, a lot of the glory, but inference is where the dollars are right now, right?
1: Yeah, I think, I think what's interesting and what I found fascinating when I joined the company, so I come from a chip background at Vago Broadcom. So we sold filters, sold network chips to Cisco and all the rest. And, and most of our markets were easy to understand. So if we're plugging into a cell phone, we easily understood the demand of phones over the next couple of years, the amount of silicon we're gonna place in there and the complication in there. And what I found fascinating when I joined the company is I called about 15 Wall Street analysts and right away, all who cover NVIDIA, and right away, the two things that were most gray in their minds was they said, you know, we keep talking about a $50 billion market, a $100 billion market now in Jensen's most recent uh, pitch, but they never tell us what is the percent of training versus inference. They never tell us the amount of stuff that's being done on a single GPU versus hundreds of GPUs. And they don't even tell us how many
2: A100s are installed.
1: And I found that really fascinating for a market that's been around for so many years. I mean, look, as
2: someone who shorted Nvidia in two thousand and eighteen, spent, <laughs> spent a lot of spent a lot of time on this, I can tell you, you're never going to get that information.
1: No, no, and, and it, like I said, and I give them credit because they can buy the numbers a just like, get bigger. Well, then you buy a company like Mellanox and it's considered it's relabeled as AI, right? Because it, it falls into that part of their you know breakdown. And people go, wow, AI
2: is really growing. Right? Yeah, it's probably bad. 25% of the data center now business. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, so, you, so you, I, and you know that business well coming from where okay. you're coming from.
1: Yeah. 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 And so I think what was really interesting is I truly believe that it's, okay, somewhere between 50 and 100 billion in, in, in three to five years, this business. But will it be 50-50 inference versus training? Will training be maybe slightly bigger because people will get excited about rerunning their models with new data every month or every week? You know, we had an interesting inbound from a frequency trader and they said, we want to rerun our model during the trading day. So think about that, is that here's someone who says they're happy if they get yesterday's trading information, run their model, prepares them for the next day. Now they want to do it in the middle of the day. What makes you think they won't want to do it on the hour? What makes you think they won't want to do it every 30 minutes,
2: ultimately? I mean, if the computer is there, they're going to want to, yes.
1: Yeah. Right. So that's financially justifiable. Yeah. So then you say to yourself, okay, if they're running it twice a day, and it's a training run of X length, and it takes this much compute hours to do it, and then for the other each four-hour segments, it's doing inference, okay, I kind of understand. So what's training, what's inference in that situation? And so I, I, I think it won't clear itself up for a long time, but I do believe it's a 50000000000 billion-plus market. I think what I try to focus on is how much of it's going to be in the data center and how much it's going to be on the edge. That's, that's I think, the more important-
2: When you say the edge, you're talking about on device.
1: Yeah, on a phone. I mean, today no, there's right, a lot no, of excitement no.
2: about edge compute at the CDN level.
1: Yep. Okay. And I think that's the one part of the AI marketplace that most analysts should keep a closer eye on because I don't think anyone's ever gonna come out and say, oh, okay. We sold, you know, NVIDIA sold X thousands of GPUs and they got installed in inference and this is how many got stalled in training.
2: Well, I mean, I think the challenge there is the, the waters get increasingly muddied as, you know, like the CPUs and even when, you know, we were, we were discussing this with respect to ARM in the data center, like what, once you start dedicating cores to do matrix multiply, you know, what what is the, the GPU in of itself, right? Correct.
1: No, that's, that's When you that's talk of like
2: NVIDIA is kind of stuck in this middle, right? It's like this all-purpose solution that worked great, you know, once this market took off and the CPUs were not optimized to handle any of this, right? And it's essentially functioning from, from an offload standpoint there. And then on the training side, no new approaches like you guys are taking where, for example, you can, you can create a chip where you can fit, tons of data on the chip from a training standpoint. So I mean, I think that's where, from at least the, a, an investor's standpoint, the struggle is to understand is how does that end up looking like in the data center? Like, are, like, do you guys envision yourself as a solution being leveraged by hyperscalers?
1: Oh, sure. I think hyperscalers, our first hyperscaler customers, our prediction is they'll use it for internal purposes right, to improve the models they have, doing some of the things that are their bread and butter. And I think the second application of our box will be them buying our boxes and then reselling them, reselling time on them.
2: Because
1: because the first one of doing their in-house applications is so critical to them now, whether or not it be Alexa, whether it be some of the other more common things we know about, that spending is only going to increase over time. And the funny part about it is think about it, think about the multiplicative effect. So Elon goes out and does a 100 million dollar supercomputer. Is he going to give away everything to do with autonomous driving to the other six or eight largest auto companies? No. The six or eight largest auto companies are all each going to have their 100 million dollar deployment. Now, Mercedes took an interesting approach partnering with with NVIDIA saying, hey, well, they're going to solve it for us, and then they'll get a piece of the money in perpetuity when when people have monthly subscriptions to autonomous driving, similar to the way maps were in the early days of navigation systems. Interesting thought, but I don't really see BMW saying, oh, we're just going to take the NVIDIA autonomous drive. And as NVIDIA knows, Autonomous driving is a very difficult thing to solve, and there's a lot of different aspects that are breakthrough technologies. And, uh, you know, so that's one thing. Same thing with Alexa. How many people have voice recognition now? Well, you know, Apple has their own Alexa. You have uh, Samsung has their own. There's several in China. The same type of thing. There's a multiplicative effect to all of this that is really, really interesting and quite compelling from an investor standpoint.
2: So do you see the market supporting multiple vendors then in that sense, if, you, if you're looking at it that way?
1: I think so. I think there's there's going to be a couple that come out of all of this. And also the other part of it, I, I don't want to be a person going on the record that somehow what we've created is the NVIDIA killer. The total growth in this market is enough for everyone. And so, you know, whether or not, Nvidia's share five years from now is eighty percent as opposed to ninety some percent. You'll still Nvidia will make a lot of money over that time frame. And there will be a couple other players in there, you know people who who do uh, some of this stuff in different ways, maybe leveraging more software than hardware. I think there's a couple of possibilities there. But you know with with the investment of individual companies trying to do their own silicon, it has to tell you something that's not just about the price of the GPU. It's about, can it do what we think we need in the next 5, 10 years?
2: Yeah, you definitely have seen kind of a fragmentation in compute, particularly at the, at the general level and people are looking for, for new ways to do it, as you guys are doing.
1: Yep. So we're 43 minutes in. I don't think I heard my first finance question. <laughs> Just kidding.
2: I mean, uh, for, for, for the public market guys these days, I guess the, the first question would be for, to someone like you is, when are, when are we going to see more of these companies being public?
1: I think that's interesting. I think the investment in this area was huge by the VC companies over the last five years. And we're not really seeing that one company come out. So, for example, you know, a couple of companies have been bought by Intel, but yet nothing really happened to them once they got bought by Intel. Uh, there's a couple of companies now that have been around for a while. So people know the name SambaNova. They know the name Graphcore. But what we're not seeing is someone who's going to have, you know, the first $100 million a year with their new product. I think we'll get there. I'm almost positive we'll get there. And it's interesting that the people who decided, hey, we're going to compete with NVIDIA or the NVIDIA solution of a GPU, chip by chip, on their own ground under their own terms on the on a, a PCI board. I think that's an interesting strategy. And, and maybe one of them will come out of that. But I think it's the newer techniques, the things that are people didn't think about is really gonna, is really gonna be the survivors in this. I don't see the, the people who just did it a little bit better as as really being significant share share in three to five years.
2: So that was the thinking in 2018, right? Like, I think you you hit the nail on the head with the, you know, and I mean, I was one of those guys. I mean, I was focused on crypto as well, but I was kind of looking for, you know, that that next chip killer, the GPU killer from, let's call it a general purpose workload solution. You plug it in and it's very clear today that, I mean, particularly when, I mean, Nvidia now is, you know, a $550 billion company nearly with multiple end markets, you know, to amortize their development across, particularly for the GPU, I, I don't see how you compete against them at that scale, trying to pursue that strategy.
1: Yeah. You'd have to come out, you'd have to come out with a design and a capability that you can produce these at one tenth the cost and ten percent better performance, and that's not going to happen anytime soon because everyone gets their chips made at TSMC and we all pay the same wafer costs. Yes, Apple pays a little less, Nvidia pays a little less, but that's what's happening. And no new fabs are being built,
2: right? Yeah. So how, you're how assen- do you? are essentially that? Sub- <laughs> ecosystem supply con- chain constrained by yeah, how to yeah. approach it. Like you would, you literally would need something magic. The so, at the software end, maybe at the design end, that nobody else can do or replicate.
1: Yeah, someone just comes up with a, a design technique that says, oh, this is how to make the core, the communication, and the memory just materially so much more efficient in every way, shape, or form. And that includes, remember, the other thing that's getting observed in this area, which I, I like to point out, especially to the investing crowd is remember how crypto went through the whole thing about, you know, do you realize how much crypto uses power, right? Remember that whole thing? Uh That discussion is happening now on these large models. BERT3, I think, GPT-3, the large trillion parameter model from Microsoft. People are asking, how much power does that take? You know, and I think that's the other benefit of our product is we're a l- much, much lower power consumer. Because as soon as you try to hook a thousand GPUs to get it together, you have to take it off chip which requires power. You have to run it through a network switch. You have to run it across some fiber optic cable. And so the power consumption on some of these massive designs is something that's starting to catch the eye of the ESG crowd.
2: Yeah, the space and is I- performance per watt per dollar. Yes, yep. Right. Yeah. And yep. I, mean, I yep. saw what yep. you guys have done on the cooling end. It's very, very impressive.
1: Yeah. So I think there's an advantage built in there too, because I think these large models, when people say, hey, it can I don't know the exact statistics, but you know, it can, you know, supply light to a major city for three months, and we're trying to figure out whether a four letter word at Facebook is offensive. Is that a good use of our power infrastructure?
2: Do you think that this market? From a workload standpoint, ends up evolving more along the lines of what we've seen coming out of hyperscale, or d- does it get driven by these, you know, use cases that you've been talking about now, like Big Pharma, et cetera? Like what pulls it the most in the immediate term?
1: I think one of the underreported things about AI space, which which I find, you know, very stark, is that the largest growth of on-prem data hardware is AI. The cloud is not a very satisfying place to do some of your work. Yes, you can provision eight GPUs. You can even ask for hundred, but they're not gonna do anything special to hook those together into a supercomputer format. Now, of course, NVIDIA is saying, well, you just need to buy a couple of our super pods and that's gonna work. You don't see anyone rushing out buying super pods. And so you know on-prem hardware growth is AI today for two reasons. One, because of that dissatisfaction with the cloud. And a lot of people don't want to put that type of data in the cloud that they're going to run some of these models against. And they know that the data charges in the cloud are pretty enormous. I mean, they're, they're efficient, don't get me wrong. They're, they're cheaper than if you had to go do it yourself. But I think that's the thing that people are realizing is that, hey, we're not going to move this huge amount of data into the cloud. And it has some sensitivities that, you know, we don't want necessarily in the cloud. We had one customer come to us, which kind of shocked me, was they said they wanted to do a trial with us, but they said the data can't leave the country. And I said, I know your business fairly well. I don't think, you know, certain recipes of soap is going to be that important, but if you say so, and that kind of gives you an idea that, you know, some things people want to keep close to home and the cloud is not a satisfying platform for many people to do their AI work. And that's why the growth on-prem.
2: That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that as much. I mean, data is essentially your IP, if that's the direction yeah. you're heading. Yeah. So I can, I can get the, the increasing sensitivity in nature. What else? You want to talk about uh, the supply chain right now and chips in general?
1: Yeah, we can. I mean, like, I I, I think one of the things people have to be aware of. I mean, the that...
2: former CEO was actually pretty, pretty vocal <laughs> recently about it. Yeah. Hawk, Hawk's
1: comment on, uh, on inventories know, non, and double non, ordering and non-cancelable and all that good stuff. And and but he's right in in one way is that the. Semi-industry suffered so much from the old double ordering. But what people don't realize is that back in the days of double ordering, there was a lot of chips that were very fungible, right? You know, the most popular one is memory, right? You say, oh, well, this can easily be replaced with this memory or that memory or something like that. And a lot of other parts in the semi-world, you know, hey, this was a, a basic switch. You know, we can use this guy, we can use that guy. I don't think on a dollar, a dollar viewpoint that the total dollar of what I would call not custom, you know, they're used in a lot of different situations, but once it's designed into a motherboard or or some other type of application, it is not easy to change it. So I come from the RF space and, and when we had supply issues, people didn't say, oh, I can just go over to Corvo. I can go to Skyworks and get the same thing. There's a lot of sensitivity now in in most chips. So I think that flexibility is gone. So you have to use the chip. Uh, You know, this whole thing with the automakers, I can guarantee you they're not swapping out chips for a lot of different reasons. And so I think there's very little around the edges that can really be this pure commodity play. And I think the chip industry went through so much bad, ups and downs and double ordering. I think what Hawk's doing is very similar because we had one vendor come back to us and they said, hey, you just need to give us a firm order for your next 18 months of demand. And if you don't do it, we can't guarantee you that demand. And that seemed like it was right out of, you know, Hawk's playbook. And that's just the way it is. But am I going out and saying, okay, well, if they can't deliver, I'm ordering this other part? No way.
2: I mean, it smooths things out, right? If you, yeah, if you get so, that commitment,
1: so I, yeah. So I think what's happening right now is, is truthfully, yes, people individually might be making grand guesses on what their forecast is 18 months out, but at the same time, I don't think that's going to cause like a big swoon if you know things catch up because the double ordering in the past was I order from this guy double and I order from this guy double. Whoever gets it there here first wins. That's not really happening much in the chip industry anymore.
2: I mean, you saw there was commentary. I mean, Elon obviously is quite vocal and he was like, we had, you know, we were short this microcontroller. We switched to another one. We wrote the software in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and you're like, all right. I mean, uh, that can't happen in in big auto. You can't validate something like that that quickly.
1: Yeah. And, and and like I said, he he says those things, but then you have to wonder, okay, so maybe he did that to his lowest production car and said, hey, I'm going to free up the chip demand I had for the axe or something and say, I'm going to put it over here. So yeah, I mean, people can do that to just kind of help themselves out on the edges, but no one's doing anything massive. If some, if some person has a fab that's, you know, 20% ahead of the production of the fab that's behind, I don't hear those stories every day and nor, nor people want to do that the risk involved in, in some of the places semiconductors go, it's just not worth it.
2: So, I mean, you know, that's just... an interesting thing. I mean, because, and I even read an article today about the topic, I think uh, on Twitter, someone had posted something with respect to, we've discussed this before, but when people talk about the chip shortages, they don't get the the concept that in auto, it's not leading edge stuff because they start stumbling it in with you know TSM and national security and and everything else. And it's like, look, these are, you know, very old process nodes, 200 millimeter dyes, you know, I mean, I'm guessing 40, 50 nanometer higher stuff. And there was a critique today. And I think maybe someone had interviewed, or, or there was a comment from Intel's new CEO saying that the automakers have been reluctant to kind of, you know, move over to, you know, or invest in leading edge stuff. Now, is this like, is this a function, like the counter argument is that if you make a chip for a car, it's got to be durable for a very, very long time period, right? And you're not dealing, I mean, if your iPhone, you know, powers out and you restart it or you lose something, I mean, it's it, its not critical. Is no, do you think I... they've underinvested or do you think that this is just kind of the nature of the game and what they've been doing works? Because then you get this whole Tesla argument that like Tesla's using leading edge silicon. And I'm like, well, I mean, is it really that different when you're talking about, motors and radar sensors and analog and everything else it's
1: no it's just simply and i come i come i was born in detroit so there's there's auto industry in my blood and the the funny part about when we were at Avago and broadcom selling to the autos it was really interesting they said this is a commitment we're making for eight years and we want these same parts available for the part you know for replacement parts for another five or something like that and once we're done, we're done. And this is a steady stream and you know you can bid on it. This is the way it works. And, and once again, they're not interested in that swap out because the, in a non-electric vehicle, the complications of the electrical system on a car are pretty amazing. Some of the things these you're running certain power wattages, you know, on your generator to you, you ramp it down for your radio, you pump it up for something else. It's very, very diverse in a in a combustion vehicle. In an electric car, is pretty standardized in some ways. But even then, I think car makers just hate that risk of you know, hey, if we put this part in, you know, everyone everyone in the car industry going goes to sleep awoken by the nightmare of a recall right and in today's world with electric cars and autonomous vehicles everyone goes to bed and is afraid to wake up that someone died in a crash right from autonomous driving and when you get that many sleepless nights it's tough to convince yourself hey i'm gonna change this out just so i can get a few more cars out so I, I think they're in a tough spot right now, and you're right. It's on nodes that there's zero investment in. You know, I'm sure there's some mothball fabs around the country and around the world that someone, if they're smart, maybe they go in and get some old uh, six and eight inch equipment running again quickly to do some of this production. But that's an area that was zero investment for equipment. So what can you do? It's a finite amount, and it went dark during the peak of the pandemic, and now trying to catch up. Is very, very difficult.
2: you have any guess on how long it takes to resolve itself?
1: I think everyone's doing everything possible. It's just there's been some oops here and there. As I heard a couple of weeks ago there was uh, an, another power outage, and I think it was in Dresden or somewhere in Europe. There was another fab that got affected, I think, three, four months ago. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a string of bad luck on top of it. But I think if everything gets committed to, and I believe the autos are probably willing to pay some price premiums, I think it'll it'll get resolved sometime early next year. I don't think it'll get resolved this year like some of the auto execs said they would, but I, I think it'll get resolved next year.
2: All right. That's great. I mean, that's a little bit off topic, but in focus. I guess one more question going back to AI chips and, and Cerebra's when when you guys look at the in house chip projects that everyone is doing, and I mean, we're talking about Tesla here, for example. They announced their D1 chip, too much fanfare. And, you know, he put up a, a slide that's going to outperform, you know, the Tesla chip was up in the right compared to everything else. When you look at what's going on in the space, do you think that bringing it back to finance, you know, when you have a public company like Netflix and it's competing against incumbents and incrementally it's adding customers and the multiple expands and gives it a potential to raise more money and so on and so forth you know there's a there's a certain self-fulfilling prophecy that can go into play when you're competing against let's call them established incumbents who are very profitable i mean you could argue hbo did nothing wrong for the last decade and uh, they the, they're targeting an audience and they had 40% you know keep it margins and everyone seemed happy but Netflix kept at it, kept at it, kept at it. and You know, now HBO is taking an approach where, you know, I think last I, l- I looked before other recent changes, you know, burning cash in the immediate term. And we need more content and we need reality TV and we need to reach a wider audience, so on and so forth. When you look at the chip space and you look at the resources, you know, to do a chip project, you're talking from, you know, design and everything else, 50 to, you know, $150 million dollars. And I mean, this is not a big deal for Amazon and Google and Microsoft. And I mean, I, I think there's even talk of Facebook doing their own in-house accelerator again. Do you think that we need a slew of like, like I mean, you're coming from, from a career background in this space. When I think of it, I think a little bit, like the last time we had this excitement around chip companies, you know, we're talking like Broadcom, PMC Sierra, you know, AMCC, the com IC guys, like circa two thousand, and the flooded chip companies that came out, we we haven't seen anything like that. And the question is, do, to get these, let's call them in-house projects, to not necessarily make sense again, or for the exits essentially to be for some incumbent chip company, like you know you, you highlighted, uh, Intel buying Nirvana and now Habana Labs. Do we need some standalone players with not that much revenue yet, but kind of at the leading edge that the market just values very aggressively as they've done in software and other places where you get this growth reinforcement virtuous cycle that allows them to scale faster and then maybe gets it to the point where like when you're running these teams in-house at the cloud companies or the likes of an Apple or a Tesla doing their own projects, to be disrupted essentially but by, by someone who's laser focused on this. And then it's like, you know what, we're just we're gonna buy their solution because they do this better than everybody else. This I mean, this idea of going back again to like because we're like in this window where it seems we've gone from this era of like dominated merchant silicon. And like, you know, if you want to think about it, it was Broadcom, Intel, and Qualcomm really for like a decade, and each had their you know respective markets, and now kind of you know, I mean, NVIDIA being what it is it's sitting it you know on top of a combination of the two but going forward I feel like there's like I mean we talked about it earlier fragmentation but like what is there something that tips it over where it's like all right we're not going to make our own chip anymore we're just going to buy the solution
1: I think there's two challenges for people saying they'll make their own one is, is very simple to understand is that there are only so many good chip designers out there. There's only so many quality A6 teams out there. You know, Apple is very fortunate to partner with one of them. But around the world to do some of the advanced silicon and so forth, there's, there might be 10, 12 teams. Yes, there's a lot of designing going on in memory and things like that. But when you're trying to do more advanced systems on a chip or some of the things that AI requires, it's a very finite group of resources out there on chip and chip design. Tools have gotten better. Uh, so they're taking some of the more laborious work out of chip design and automating it through some of the new a- algorithms. And I know all the, the synopsis of the world are, are saying that you know here here's a, a group of things that were designed with AI, using AI to help the chip design. So that's one facet of it. The other part of it is, as you mentioned, it's a 50 to $150 million investment. And then what do you have? You, all you have is a mass set. Who's going to produce it? <laughs> Most of the more advanced nodes in, in um, you know, chip manufacturing are pretty much sold out. It's Samsung and TSMC. That's it. And if anyone believes that Intel is going to solve the uh you know foundry situation i think it's going to take them a lot longer and then if anyone actually believes global foundries has the capability to do this and be an active player that's that's another one i do not believe it
2: I mean, they just filed their s1 yesterday i think
1: yeah that's right i think it's been what only we had a guy leave avago in 2009 to go to global Foundries. so
2: yeah, I, I know some them. people who invested in that from uh, Abu Dhabi. <laughs> yeah. That's a long road, but they have some old equipment and
1: some old fabs, IBM upstate New York, and uh, some of the ones in Singapore. Maybe they can solve the chip crisis. Sorry.
2: <laughs> and that goes back to uh, Ruiz's strategy. Yeah, when you get over an hour...
1: An hour talking to me, I get a little cynical. So I, I mean, rightfully so.
2: Uh, they, they definitely there was bad, cho- very bad choices made there, multiple times. All right. All we'll right. Well, that's you, excellent. Tony. this has been fantastic.
0: Yeah. Right. Thank you so much for your time here. It's been uh, we're glad we got you long enough to get get a little bit of cynicism as well. It's always nice. Yeah, to... No worries. No worries. Well, wow. thank you for listening to the Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at @DanielShortman Daniel Shortman and at AkramsRazor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by SoCal.